From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this afternoon at the moment with my buddy and colleague, Adi Weiner. We're going to open the Q1 together. As you guys know, our regular listeners know, Q1 in the time of pandemic has become a pandemic quarter. We try to uh, make sense of the pandemic. We try to read the studies and talk about them and um, hopefully advance the thinking a little bit, at least amongst ourselves. We also periodically have guests, guests who know a whole lot more about this stuff than us, guests who are real experts on these things. And we're delighted today to welcome onto the show to start our quarter. Dr. Nikki Turan is with us. Dr. Turan is a senior biosecurity fellow at the Institute for Progress. The Institute for Progress is an organization that advocates for research, which we, we, we're fans of. We're researchers, and so we like advocates for research, but they're talking about more scientific research. And Dr. Turan caught our eye with a piece on funding for BARDA, which is something you guys may or may not have heard of but need to hear about. BARDA is a different angle into this whole pandemic conversation and an increasingly important one as we transition out of the acute phase we've been in towards the chronic long-term phase of how we're going to cope with what comes next. We thought it was sufficiently important that we needed to hear from someone who actually knew what they were talking about. So Dr. Turan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you. We're delighted to hear a little bit more about what's going on. We only barely know about BARDA ourselves. We've heard we hear references to, well, the scientists know how to build these things that are going to be good for all strains of this, all viruses in the future, or all family, all, the whole family of COVID or whatever it is. And that sounds neat. That sounds like a neat science thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we figured we should know a little bit more about that. Before we do that, real quickly, Dr. Tran, what is your background and why is it that you're writing about BARDA? So my background is actually I have a PhD in genetics but I've been working since then in pandemic prevention policy at the federal level. So I'm writing about BARDA because I think BARDA is probably one of our best shots at preventing the next pandemic. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they're under-resourced. So Mm -hmm. I'm writing about what they can do, why it's great, and then trying to figure out ways to convince everyone else that they are what we need. Right. Reading. So the piece you wrote came out maybe last week. I think this is on the web, your, your Institute for Progress's website. And it, I'm reading it and I want to understand more of it. But then it does strike me. We need to we need to find people who are really good, like rhetoricians to make this case in the most compelling marketing way. Adi, maybe we need to get our buddy Bradlow, the marketing professor. Involved He's good. In he certainly is good at that. But just clarify just for a second. Um, you're, you're with the Institute for Progress and you're writing about BARDA. You don't work for BARDA. Correct. Yes. BARDA is a government organization and I am not affiliated with the government. She's just advocating for it. Okay. So let us understand what BARDA is. What is BARDA and what is their role in pandemic prevention? BARDA is the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, and they perform advanced research and development of biomedical things. Mm-hmm. So their mission is to develop and procure the new medical countermeasures, which include vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, and other non-pharmaceutical countermeasures like masks mm-hmm. um, for a broad array of different public health threats, whether natural or intentional. So mm-hmm. when they were started, the idea was to have countermeasures against things like nuclear, radiological, chemical, and biological threats. 
So they have a pretty broad mandate. Um, mm-hmm. But the key things here now are trying to prevent the next pandemic because we have these technologies, like science says we can do this, but no individual is going to pay for it. It's really the kind of job for the government. So part okay, is so here to do the advanced development. Yeah. You just ask, what does science say we can do? Science. Before we do that, one more, just a little yeah. bit more on the structure and the motivation for BARDA mm-hmm. at all. This is solving um, or trying to solve or addressing a market failure. This is a, a public good, essentially, that there's some risk out there, low probability, high impact to public welfare that's going to fall between the market cracks just by the nature of market structures. This is why, you know, why governments create militaries. This is, there's, it's a classic call for government, even people who are anti-big governments. Like this is stepping in to solve a market failure is a broad principle as I understand it. So give us an example, like the smallpox is, is considered one of their success stories. Or what, what is the story with smallpox? I feel like smallpox was something from a bygone era that we don't have to deal with anymore. Yeah, so after the 2001 anthrax attacks, the Congress put together Project BioShield which was designed to make medical countermeasures against intentional attacks. So things like anthrax or smallpox. Um, And then in 2006, the assistant secretary for preparedness and response um, came together and made BARDA or was established and BARDA was part of that. And they took over project BioShield, but they were able to work with companies in particular Bavaria Nordic to design test and produce a smallpox vaccine. So that's why you might not need to be that worried about the current monkeypox outbreak because we have some of the tools to tackle that. Um, But like you said, you wouldn't have thought that you would really need a smallpox vaccine. Like you're not currently vaccinated against it because it's been entirely wiped out from the globe, except for in some freezers uh, in the US and in Russia. So the fear is that someone could take that virus and spread it again. Smallpox is particularly bad because it kills about a third of the people that it infects and it's pretty darn contagious. Mm-hmm. Um, so the goal was to have tests, vaccines, and therapeutics ready to go in case there was a biological attack. Mm-hmm. We've been fortunate that actually they work pretty well against monkeypox as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the kind of a cool idea of having like a prototype vaccine. So I use air quotes there where we don't have a vaccine for everything in the orthopox family, but we do have a vaccine for something and it can be used or modified quickly for a new threat like monkeypox. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now you're coming close to answering the Adi, the Adi question from a few minutes ago, which is what can they do about future pandemic threats or coronavirus related p- pandemic threats? Yeah, so luckily they could do things a lot more broad than just coronavirus-related pandemic threats. Um, I think like you mentioned, the idea of like being prepared for like a specific threat um, and like the market there, um, it's actually a lot easier to be prepared for, a little bit prepared for any threat. So BARDA in particular can help identify threats faster by using what we call threat agnostic early warning tools like metagenomic sequencing. So you don't need to know what threat you're looking for, but you can still tell if something pops up. You can detect infections faster um, by developing rapid detection tools, like you know the at-home COVID test you guys use for more than one threat. 
um, and protect people better, either by creating more advanced PPE, like masks that are antimicrobial, or pathogen proof buildings. Like, there's no reason uh, your kids need to come home from daycare all the time sick. Like, there can be better ventilation, filtration, and sterilization uh, in basically everywhere we live to prevent common colds, but also to slow down pandemics. So, um, Dr. Tran, real quickly, take one of those examples and tell us why that's BARDA's purview. You're saying they can do this better, but you don't actually mean they're going to go out and do the science and they're going to do the manufacturing. They're going to they're going to spur it in private industry. But why, why, why do they need why do why do we need them to be that impetus? Why isn't private industry doing those kind of things on their own? Because it's like a low probability. There isn't really a market for creating tests for all of the different potential pathogens because you don't know which one is going to be the threat. Um, and so you don't want to waste your money on the off chance that there's going to be a NEPA outbreak in the United States. Uh, but the government can incentivize the development of those tests. And so BARDA works with biotech companies to let them know what kind of tests or treatment that the federal government might want and then to actually help walk them through the approvals process with the FDA. Um, they also de-risk technologies. So they uh, basically do help pay for the basic science that will help us figure out if a technology is viable or not. So the de-risk technology, you mean, just you just said it, because it, it sounds like a really important idea. You're saying, look, we don't know what technology is going to work. And so we need those who develop technology to invest in a lot of different kinds and then down the road, we'll, we'll know, it'll be plain eventually, but they will have made some bad investments or they will have made investments that didn't pan out. If you anticipate that ahead of time as a person making capital budget allocations, they may not want to do that because they're going to have a bunch of failed investments. So the government's saying, look, go do all those things. We'll take care of the ones that don't work out because we want you to make that investment so we can figure it out. Is this basically the logic? Yeah, basically. And so one good example of that, I think right now is for UVC. Far UVC, where like you can use ultraviolet light to kill germs. Um, it's probably safe and probably effective, and it would be great if we could have them in our house all the time. But like we're just not sure yet. There needs to be more studies. So no company wants to pick it up and start working on it until you're like really darn sure that no one's going to be injured and that it'll actually kill the pathogens you want it to. Interesting. You talk about UV. I bought one when I bought one of those lights when I replaced my my uh my ac can uh in my house and they sold it on yeah. as a pathogen um kind of reduction technology mostly for mold i think um but i, I had no idea whether it worked or not and i paid the 75 dollars for the bulb and just saying oh okay so the market might generate itself based on people feeling that if it's a small enough cost they might as well do it particularly after coronavirus i mean things like ventilation like uv lights i think that we're potentially uh, ready to adopt some of these low cost measures that might have potential impact. But the question I wanted to ask is, is this one, um, we, there's a certain path, set of pathogens that are out there that we're unprepared for. Mm -hmm. And it does in some level make sense to try to prepare for them because to have available tests, for example, things that we've seen before that, that, um, that, that just aren't running around there causing damage, but could come back or could grow like Ebola, things like that. But what is the bigger threat? The things that we know exist coming back or the things that we've never seen before? Could we have made a coronavirus uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, detection system before it arose? Or did we need to see it before we, before we could make it? 
So that's the great thing about some of those threat agnostic warning tools like metagenomic sequencing. Every pathogen has like a genetic, like every pathogen has a genome, right? It has RNA or DNA. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all the people, everyone does, um, every living thing. And you can read the DNA or RNA from a sample and find out what's in it. Um, so you might be able to say, hey, there's this coronavirus that looks a little bit different than something we've seen before. We could also say like, hey, there's this totally new thing that doesn't look like something we would expect in uh, the human population. And it's, it's amplifying, it's growing exponentially. And so that's a great tool that you don't need to know what you're looking for in order to find something. So are you suggesting potentially that if we had this in place, um, we could have spotted this coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, um, way back before it was even a, th a thing in China um, and potentially had caught it with potentially developed tests to spot it in human beings much faster. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's like kind of embarrassing how often people come into the hospital with upper respiratory infections mm -hmm. and you like throw, try to throw some treatments at them, but you never actually identify what is making them sick. Hmm. Uh, so that's fascinating. So you would potentially want to do genetic testing on everything that comes in because it's cheap enough. And, and if, if BARDA did its thing and spread it out, every, every emergency room would have the, like a, a device which swab to machine to output, right? Yeah, to and like the dream would be if I could just blow into a tube in the morning if I feel kind of sick and figure out if it's allergies or if it's a common cold or if it's something I should be really worried about. Oh, I pay for that but, right here. Yeah, <laughs> the hope is that BARDA can do some investments to bring down the cost mm -hmm. and to make things easier to use. Um, I've heard the analogy to uh, GPS that right now sequencing is where GPS was like 40 years ago, where you need to like have taken a special course and have like a giant backpack in order to make it work. But now like, my grandma can use GPS on her smartphone. So hopefully we'll be able to get there with some more investment. <laughs> I have to tell you, I'm very enthusiastic about this because it sounds like a data solution. Um, yep. And that's really great. <laughs> let me, let me, we've talked around this, but I, th I think the examples that people have heard most commonly is Moderna. So mm -hmm. the, the, the reason this vaccine got done as quickly as it did, Pfizer's was outside of the government support, but Moderna's was squarely within that. It, and, and then my, my impression of this model for the next generation of these things is that there's some base level of preparation that can be made such that the actual vaccine can then be produced in a greatly accelerated time. Is that, is that the right? That's spot on. Yeah. Okay. So Moderna was part of Operation Warp Speed. And BARDA helps provide that interface between the government and biotech companies for that. Um, and as you're suggesting, we can get to like a certain point with a lot of vaccines. So we know which viral families infect humans. And so we can look at those and figure out what the best parts to target on a particular virus might be. Make a vaccine and show in phase one studies that it's safe for people. Um, and phase two studies that you can like get an immune response. Um, and then you can put it on a shelf and wait until there's a new outbreak of something. And then you can take it off the shelf and say, okay, this is close enough that we can just deploy it. Or we can make just a couple tweaks and then start uh, sending out into the field to check to make sure it actually works. Mm -hmm. um, but also to start vaccinating people so we don't have to wait a year before we can actually help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Can you talk a little bit, Dr. Turan, about the procurement strategies? You noted in your article that there are these innovations and the way they, they do spur innovation. It's in, and it's supposed to be one of the positive features of BARDA. What are some of the ways they do this? Yeah, so BARDA isn't necessarily just like giving grants to people who are doing research, as there might be an academic model, um, but they can also do things like prizes or milestone-based awards. Um, or advanced market commitments. So an advanced market commitment is saying like, hey, if you make a vaccine, let's say you make an intranasal vaccine for COVID-19, we will buy it from you. So that guarantees that there's a market, right? advanced market commitment. Okay. But you can also do milestone-based awards or prizes in like, if you show that your intranasal vaccine works and elicits immune response and is safe, uh, and you get it to phase two, and you're able to do that, we will give you money. Even if you don't get it through phase three, or you never actually produce it. Like, we think that's a valuable step. And it's something that you need to get to in order to get to the endpoint we want. And so we will help pay you. Um, and so they're, they're also able to partner with biotech companies and help like pick up some of the tab so that these kinds of research can be performed. Okay. Can we tell about you just spent a lot of money in those examples. It sounds like a lot of money. Make the economic argument here because I think you throw some numbers around that make it sound like a no-brainer. If it's such a no-brainer, why is Congress so reluctant to make the funding? But give us just the basic economic rationale for why this little obscure government organization ought to receive money so they can throw these prizes and milestones and commitments around. So it depends on which part of the economy you really care about. If you care about the entirety of the U.S. economy, the estimate is that the current pandemic has cost $16 trillion. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And we hope that we can get an investment in BARDA um, of about $8 billion a year. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that if we were to do that, right, if there was a pandemic every like 100 years, we would still pay off like over 10x. Um, and so like, just like the order of magnitude of how bad things can be, make it really easy to pay just a couple billion dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, BARDA's current budget is about 800 million. Okay, okay. Now it's, it's government, the government tends to be reactive. I mean, a crisis happens and they throw out of money at it. And then yeah. they kind of get there distracted by the next crisis. Where yeah. are we at then funding model? And what do you think needs to be done to, to, to really set BARDA up? In this moment of crisis, is there some, you know, what's the, there's a quote about never waste a, a you know, never loot. What is the quote? Never, you know, waste a crisis. Crisis is an opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're totally right. The usual way that Congress operates is that let's throw money at something in an emergency and respond when it is so much cheaper to prepare instead. Um, so what BARDA really needs is sustained funding. Like these research developments, um, they take time. Like, yes, you can speed things up by working people around the clock, like we did with Operation Warm Speed, but that's more expensive and also sustainable. So we're looking to see um, in the president's most recent budget request, he requested about $40 billion, the B, dollars over the next five years for Asper, where BARDA is. Um, and so that would be like a really great step towards preventing pandemics because we could develop all these technologies to the point where they would be ready to p- deploy when necessary. 
Dr. Tran, do you know, this may be an unfair question, you probably weren't prepared to answer, but do you know who the advocates are on Capitol Hill for this kind of funding? Do they, Are there some big obvious advocates in either the House side or the Senate side? Um, are you talking about the actual Congress people or organizations? Either one, but Congress people in particular. Um, like I don't want to misspeak and be wrong. That's fine. Give, give, they, give it later on. We'll promote it. We'll promote it if you if you point it point our way to it later on. It's totally totally okay. But this needs um, advocacy. We need to find yeah. advocates clearly. So I do think that like uh, Senator Hickenlooper has been. Colorado. There's a uh, Colorado. Yeah, there are a couple of letters that were written uh, to the Appropriations Committee advocating for funding for BARDA. And if you want, I can pull them up again and find out who they were, but I'm pretty confident that Hick Looper was one of them. He's actually been really great on genomic sequencing in general as well. Okay, well, send, send them our way when you have the chance and we'll do what we can to, to spread the word. Um, last question for you on a little bit of a different note. You On your Twitter feed, very interesting Twitter follow, by the way, you talk about this Aranet, I may not be pronouncing it correctly. Yes. Yeah. These sensors, which I can't believe we're two and a half years into the pandemic, and I'm just now seeing these little sensors that people are carrying around, which seem to judge air quality in some way. So what can you tell us about that? I think that they're a lot of fun. Um, I say RNET. I don't actually know how they pronounce it. Okay. But it measures CO2. And so CO2 is what you breathe out. And it's not like a perfect relationship for how much you might be breathing out a virus, but it does correlate. Obviously, if you have like a HEPA filter, the HEPA filter will remove virus, but not CO2. But it's really interesting to see in different places. Like I was recently flying and in one of the airport terminals, the CO2 was at like 1500 parts per million, which is about three times higher than you would get outside. Whereas at a different airport terminal, the CO2 was around 600 parts per million. And so you could tell the difference in how much ventilation was in the space just by looking at that little meter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is a tool that we, it, well, it, I like what you led with, Dr. Tran, which was it's fun. If nothing else, it's fun. Let's not take I like it data. You guys like data. Yet, right? I think it's a lot of fun. Well, we're geeks for data, so it, we'd probably find it fun as well. But it sounds like it's something that gives you some sense, even to walk into a room or a restaurant, mm-hmm. you get some sense of whether it's a relatively well ventilated. You might have to use it a, a lot before you got calibrated for it, but you can get a relative sense of how things are calibrated or how things are ventilated. And it sounds like those guys do meters of a wide range. You're going to talk about Aranet or Aranet. It's spelled A-R-A-N-E-T, little sensors, a little toy. If you want to add a little gamification to your pandemic experience, go to Aranet sensors. Okay, Dr. Tran, we'll let you go. Thank you very much for the time today. We love the advocacy that you're doing, and we wish you the best with it. Cool. Thank you guys for having me. Fun to shop. Dr. Nikki Tran, Senior Biosecurity Fellow at the Institute for Progress, author of a recent piece talking about funding of BARDA. Sounds obscure, but it affects our lives and it's something we all ought to be caring about a little bit more. All right, guys, that has been Pandemic Q1. We'll wrap it there and move on to other matters in Qs 2, 3, and 4. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics. Moving into the sports segment of the show now. 
after that Q1 interview on the pandemic, especially funding for future, future pandemic prevention. We have the whole crew here together. We were split up for a little bit of that and we'll be split up later. But for now, for this quarter, we've got the whole crew. This is Cade Massey hosting with Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, longtime collaborators here on Wharton Moneyball. You guys can jump in and join us. We love it when you do. Hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics. We tweet occasionally about the world of pandemic, sports in general. You know, we're not super analytics-y up there. We're a general follow. Love to have you. You can also send us email. We have a mailbag via email. The address there is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at Wharton. .upin.edu. We read everything you send. We get as much of it on as we can. I've got a few I want to read today, guys. So we'll get to that. But let's, in fact, let me give you one. Let me put, I'm going to put Eric on, on, the, on his back feet with, the, with, our first, with our first mailbag in a couple of weeks. Longtime listener, friend of the show, Yuval Rotenstrike, writes, what did he write? Where is this note? I've got it sitting here somewhere. He writes, I enjoyed Eric's commentary about the tennis big three. But I think he overdid it with the contention that only they are legitimately in the conversation for best tennis player ever. That shortchanges many great players from the past. Most prominently, Rod Laver has 11 official majors, has another eight unofficial majors, times he won the Shadow Pro Tournament to a major that was only open to amateurs. He's the only man to win the Calendar Grand Slam twice. For a generation at least, he was widely considered the best ever. Roy Emerson and Ken Roswell had not quite the same, but similar records. They were themselves a big three back win. Eric, this is written from a fan, a supporter. Yeah. But he's taking you to task a little bit on being a little too sure that there was no discussion about other entrants into the big three. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, if you look at ELO ratings and lot, you know, lifetime ELO ratings, Rod Laver's never even listed in the top five or six. Um, when you started reading the note, I thought you were going to say a couple other players. Uh, I thought you were going to say Pete Sampras, although the challenge with Pete Sampras had the reason he wouldn't be considered the top is he never won the French and he was great at Wimbledon. He was very good at the U.S. Open. The other two majors, not as much. Uh, I thought he you was like say, him, him and Nadal together would be the greatest player. Of yeah, well, right. uh, well, I think <laughs> Federer, a weird hybrid Federer, of those Federer, two guys. Federer and Nadal together. Yeah. Federer and Nadal together. Federer is the greatest grass court player of all time. There's no real dispute there. He ended up winning more Wimbledons than Sampras. And Federer, I think, has more U.S. Opens. You even said it last week, Shane. I think he has more. I didn't think he did, but I think he has more U.S. Opens than Djokovic. Although mm-hmm. I wouldn't say Federer is a better hard court player than Djokovic at all. Um, but I thought you were going to tell me he was going to say Pete Sampras or Bjorn Borg. Those two I'm willing to consider because they also played in very tough eras. I mean, Borg played in the McEnroe, Connors, Lendl era. That's those are no slouches. And Sampras did play in the Becker, Agassi, you know, era where there were other, you know, guys that had six, seven, eight majors. But no, I don't think there's any argument that I've ever seen statistically that suggests that Rod Laver had the same greatness of the career. The talent pool was much thinner. And so it's just not fair. I mean, maybe, but there's no evidence because the talent pool was smaller. He wasn't competing against that many players that could really win the title. He just wasn't. 
One question for y'all, and analytically, in our conversation last week, we, we ended up going to this ELO website so you can compare players' ELO ratings across eras. ELO, ELO, be careful. That's named after a person. That's right. It's, it's named after a guy. Um, is it is that is it sufficient? Is it adequate? Is that do you do you buy? Is that like enough to settle the debate in terms of if you just set for well, peak? I mean, we had the we had the debate about peak versus longevity. I get it, but it just peak performance. Can we look at ELOs across eras and be satisfied that it's well? Represent- one, one one thing that we kind of that makes us kind of like not completely buy into ELO, like uh, you know, for team sports, is that it's you know entirely based on essentially out like wins and losses. It's like a binary kind of representation of every single match. I, I agree. It's it's not great and, for team. I, I'm not referring to team. I don't think that's fair. No, 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 no. But. Let me continue. Like, I think the same point that it doesn't take into account strength of victory could okay. at least weaken it a little bit as a measure for even like non-team sports. You know, I mean, like, so for periods of dominance, you know, right. like, like when, when Tiger won like the U.S. Open by 15 strokes and beat everybody or, every tournament. You know, I, that's okay. those types of, yeah, I think in terms of that kind of level peak performance, I, I think we miss out with just ELO of some amount of that kind of, you know, we miss out on the kind of inter ter, or intra-tournament dominance as opposed to the inter-tournament But Shane, dominance. you would agree with the way I framed it. By the way, I'm looking at the peak ELO ratings. I'm, I'm back at the same website. Rod Labor's listed as eighth all-time, which yeah. is fine. Now look, For peak. Djokovic, Borg, Because Roy Emerson, I guess, was kind of his main competitor back in and the Rose day, Wall. right? Rosewall and Emerson would yeah. have been the main competitors. Rosewall's number 13 all-time Emerson is not on the top 20 list. Arthur Ashe is, who would have played at the beginning, at least, of the hit. You know, uh, Laver's end was Ashe's beginning. Nastasi, Tony Roach are all in the top 20. They would have been there. But notice what I said, Shane. I said, I didn't say that Rod Laver is not. I just said there's no evidence supporting it because of the era in which he played in, there weren't the other greats. And so it's hard for me to say that Rod Laver deserves to be in the top three, but it doesn't mean he doesn't. Guys, an interesting question this raises is the psychology of a guy who was the best to that point. Because it sounds to me like given these rankings that when he played, he was the best ever at the time. And so it it makes it a little hard to get past that. You know, we're, we're probably all guilty of that in the same way. I mean, we experienced Michael Jordan and Wayne Gretzky and Mike Tyson as the best ever. And we were correct, but now we have to make the retrospective evaluation and it's harder to do. And it's probably, we're probably biased towards the people that we experienced real time as the best cumulatively to that point. Adi. A couple of things. First of all, we're not trying to make a, you know, a, uh, era adjusted comparison so we're not trying to imagine what would happen if michael jordan went back in time or you switch players and the sort of era adjustment stuff that that people wonder about we're looking and so it's not elo isn't going to do that um just to, shane made a point about intra tournament you can modify elo it doesn't have to be win loss you can give it all kinds of weights um that and so you can do it that way. What makes um, these the the Djokovic, uh, Nadal, Federer, et cetera, comparison is that it seems to be that these three are so dominant 
They have to play against each other. And that kind of is a, is a bit of a, of a, of a wrench in the in potential, potential wrench of ELO system. But I will point out, since we're talking about long-time listeners, Eric. Hold on, Adi, yes. Adi, hold on. Why is that a wrench in the system? If everything's head-to-head, yeah. if you're yeah, beating because, better players, you get credit for beating better players. Yes, that's true. That's true. But we decide on who's a better player by what they're doing to everybody else. So when you have three players who are essentially beating each other, you, you sort of shrink them back down to earth a little bit. Is that um, right? So that's that's how the algorithm works. It doesn't try to. Even do if those threes crush everybody else, that's it to a certain degree. Remember, tennis is a is a, is a sport whereby the better players really dominate the ones the ones uh, for fewer down the down the rung. You don't see that in, in hockey. The best team doesn't always win. In, in football, baseball, basketball, it, it's a there's a. We've, this is one of our long-standing discussions. You know, questions we always ask: How much better? How good is the the tails are? But in tennis, the tails are extraordinary. Um, yes. And, and that is something that does make a bit of a, of a wrench. Though, though, though a counter argument would be, I mean, you know, their head to head is actually a pretty small number of matches that they've played in their careers. They're right? very, very dominant in the ELO system to get at the upper end. Because tennis is so dominant, the bet, you know, a top five player should just crush a, a 25th player most of the time and do. Well, let's just talk about yeah, that, but I, I just because you just because you bring that up. There was a tournament this last week, by the way, that I watched. It was an ATP 250, of which I forget the guys. You're really slumming it with 250s. I know, but there's a but yeah, but the, there was a lot of top players there because they're getting the grass season ready for Wimbledon, so all the top oh. players were playing. The guy Adi, so what's your response to this? I don't remember exactly. The guy's name was Van something. He was a Dutch player. He got a wild card into the tournament, so he's not even he's not ranked 205 in the world. He beat Taylor Fritz, who's number 17 in the U.S. He's 17 in the world. Then he beat Felix Auger-Aliassime, who's number nine. And then he Whoa. beat Daniel Medvedev in the finals, what? who's what? number one. This is what? number 205 in the you, world. You know what I say to that? He's misranked. Yes, I had the same <laughs> All right. Well, then, one match right. in, so, I had the same reaction. <laughs> well, that, all right. So all, I'm saying, all I'm just saying, he had never played an ATP 250 or above event yeah. ever. And so all I'm commenting on is, Adi, it made me, as I was watching the match, I'm like, there's no way this guy's 205 in the world. There's something wrong with the tennis ranking system. No way. Yeah. Interesting. Right. You mentioned this. I just want to say one thing to shout out to our, to our old friend, Mark Lickman. All of us know him. Um, he, uh, that was his thesis, to, to fix ELO so it doesn't mm-hmm. handle these, it handles these new people coming into the, into the system. And now I think they call it the Glico. Uh, yeah, no, it is it, the it, Glico it is system. The system used in chess. Right. So we should maybe uh, do some of the same modifications. (laughs) Well, fellas, I want to transition to the NBA, which is the biggest ongoing sporting event we're in the middle of right now. But to do that, I want to hit one more mailbag question. And it came from uh, a long time listener of ours named Ryan Brill. And Ryan, he made this interesting comment. I'm curious to get your reaction. You know, we've whinged about the 538 basketball model for weeks now. In fact, we even had Neil Payne on to kind of quasi defend it, even though it's not his model. It's just his organization's model. They were big on the Celtics. And, you know, to some extent, that's been borne out. But they were bigger than we think was appropriate at the time. Anyway, we, talk, we talked about that a lot. They seem to be pretty far off. Ryan says he feels like it was a bad look for analytics. And I thought that was a, I thought that was a provocative suggestion that when 538's model, if we just accept the fact that it's seemed wrong or is flawed in some way, it is a bad look for analytics. I was curious to get y'all's reaction from Ryan. Well, just because you know it, it gave kind of a relatively high probability to an outcome that probably 
you know, it looks like it's not going to happen. Is that why? The it's betting line, or, or, no, or just that it's misaligned with the uh, betting line. Dramatically misaligned early and like a lot of people calling it out and noting it. And a very prominent. Even though it model. has actually kind of been borne out. Yeah, Boston but that's, has, yeah. that's, 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 you know, we need to judge these things at the time based on. Well, right. Going. All right. But I mean, like another one where that I, 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 you know, not to kind of change the topic too much, but, you know, the, the, the Hillary Trump election, you know, 538. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. That's definitely not what we're talking about. That was in line with the markets. That was that no one was saying this is like crazy. Come on. This, this no, no, but no, 530, 538 of all the prediction kind of forecasting came the I mean also predicted that Hillary would win, but came the closest to yeah, yeah. But just but actually, there's, a different, there's a different thing there. So so this what Brian Ryan is saying is about analytics. What Nate Silver said is, is he doesn't believe his model for the election. He says there's too many weird things going on and he's just going to shrink it back towards 50% because there's so many oddities. And that was a, that was a good call on his part, but it wasn't analytics based. It was simply based on an instinct based on the previous elections going awry and all kinds of. Well, it is analytics and that the, you know, yeah, it is. Alex admit when you don't know. Well, I want to answer, I'm going to answer highly question. I'm going to answer your question directly from my opinion, Kate. Yes. I agree with Ryan's email. I think 538 publishing that they had an 82% chance, the Celtics, to win the series. I'm not saying their model's not allowed to say 82%, but they should have shrunk that back using some other, they should have adjusted thing. When the model comes out to a number that seems improbable with low face validity, one should start questioning the model. So I, I think it's a bad look for them to have published that number. Yes, I do. For them, but Brian's saying bad look for analytics. I think that was- No, it's not a bad look for analytics. Well, I mean, 538 does have a lot of cachet. So I agree. Leading, I agree. So for, if the, a leading provide, provider of analytics- that looks poor, that does, in some global sense, does reflect badly. I mean, speaking of reflecting badly, uh, the, you know, so there's all these broadcasts now that are analytics-based, ESPN2, uh, you've seen it in football, you've seen it in basketball. Baseball's doing one, and their numbers, for the Apple TV hired a company to produce pr- um, probabilities, and they're horrifying. They're just a laughing stock. That's a bad look for analytics. I don't know if this is a controversy that anyone has, has, has well, seen. Well, can you give company. an example? Oh, uh, yeah. They'll talk about the probability of, of this, this at bat ending in a certain outcome. And they're just way miscalibrated. Like they'll say there's a 15 percent probability of a home run or uh, and, and that's what the kind of numbers they're putting out. Someone went and collected them and then just tried to at least calibrate them and show how off they were. And, and they just they just were silly. OK, this is such a good example. I think it's spot on. And I heard actually another listener of ours and a friend of ours, David Rogoff, wrote me about this a couple of weeks ago. He said there's an effective wild, effectively wild podcast episode about it that yeah. Ben Clements has written about and on fan graphs. And I think it's spot on to Ryan's emails, like when something that high profile and Eric, you just used the term face validity. I think it's exactly the right term, because I think. The 538 basketball forecasts have lost face facility this season. And it's bad when such prominent models, or even if the Apple TV model isn't prominent, it's a prominent platform using a model. It undermines, as Adi said, the global kind of politics of analytics and decision-making where there's a a great global struggle, guys, to build credibility for these models. And when high-profile models get it that wrong, like that obviously- Get it that wrong. it It does undermine. Well, again, like when we say that, again, that 80 percent Boston winning, 
it all. We're going to call it wrong when Boston doesn't win it all. No, How often will that happen? I, with the United and I'm calling it wrong regardless of what happens. Come on, man. This is, I mean, they win or lose, it's wrong. It's just so, it's, it wasn't because, because of well, okay. All right. But I mean, again, if, if, if you want to protect yourselves from ever uh, being missed, just bet 50% every time, 50% every time, right? There's no resolution in that. We like resolution also. Where the calibration I mean, is not the only. They, they were predicting 80%. And that's just out of line for any team. Even in the great Warriors team of a few years back was, was it 80%. Actually, it would be, I, I, that would be a great guess would be in the year that they won 73 games. uh uh-huh. What was their odds to win that series against the Cavaliers? Mm. What, was it even 80%? My guess is no. And what was it even – I'd be interested – what were the odds when they were – another possible miscalibration, not just for them, for anybody, is when the, Caval- when the Warriors were up three games to one, mm. did everyone have them at a 99% chance to win <laughs> the series? When, you know, that's obviously somewhat miscalibrated, probably. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe that is right. Well, what, what, what Eric, I like what Eric's doing. He's just using it rhetorically. He's using past probability. Well, you know, boundary okay, but I have to say, analytics has not done a good job because it's hard – getting the extreme events right. I mean, it, every yeah. Super Bowl where some team won, they were down by a lot, a lot of points. At the oh, end. yeah. The, that's I can't remember. That. I, that, no sure. one here, none of you guys remember that. But, no, yeah, I, would, uh, I, I don't know what you're anything. talking about. We but probably should go back was, to the archives. It was not, they were publishing, is it 99.99%? Yeah. Um, that was clearly, obviously, in hindsight, is it right? Um, and, but but the, the usual argument is when, when you put out a... a, a a, st- a statistic that says 80-20, well, 80-20 means still 20. That's one out of five. Mm-hmm. That, so that's not the problem. The problem is, is that this is extreme. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, thank you, Ryan, for that note. Look, it's, it's inevitable this is going to happen. Analytics has blown up so much. All kinds of organizations are putting this out. It's a little, you know, it's a bad, I think it's a bad look at 538, but we've said enough on that over the last few months. I just thought it was interesting contribution to like the ongoing political you know role that analytics is playing and this is why we love the mailbag moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu please keep sending them in all right now about the actual game of basketball we're recording on tuesday afternoon this goes up on wednesday morning a few times replayed on sirius xm over the week game five last night in san francisco going in two two the warriors Finally moved ahead in this series. They've been behind or tied to this point. They got it done last night. It was one of the, it was a comfortable in the end. It wasn't comfortable getting there. Any take on the series? They're coming back to Boston. I guess that'll be Thursday night. I think it's. Um, I think I will say the following. I think Golden State is better defensively than I thought they were. Mm-hmm. I thought that. I thought Boston going into the series had the much better defense. I don't now. I think they both have fairly equal, really good defenses. And the reality is when Golden State needs to score, they've got a way to figure out how to score. I think Boston does not. I think, you know, I'm not saying, by the way, Jason Tatum and and Jalen Brown are phenomenal players. But you know what? They're not scorers. And what I mean by that is, you see, like, we've lived through the era of scores. Like, Kevin Durant wakes up and he can drop 40. Steph Curry can wake up and he can drop 40. By the way, I don't consider LeBron James a scorer. That's not who LeBron James is. I think Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are great 
two and three offensive players on your team. And if they don't win this series, that's because they don't have, in my mind, a true number one scorer. I'm not Eric, saying is they're this not the phenomenal players. People I'm, talk about how these guys are so flexible, agile, they can, they can switch. It allows them all kinds of permutations. But maybe a downside, maybe that's a nice way of saying they're not great at any one thing. Is that a version of what you're saying? I don't saying? know. Tatum and, Tatum and Brown are both really – I mean, I don't, I don't want to put them in the Hall of Fame yet, but if they go on the career trajectories they are, they're great players. I just say, in my opinion, that neither one of them is a number one on offense, on the offensive side of the ball. And, and, and that's you why claim- they struggle in the last five minutes of the game. They don't have a true number one offensive talent. Is this related to your big man theory? No, no, it's related to my theory that when you ask players to do things that they shouldn't be doing because they're not actually that type of player. Like we remember, we drummed Andre Iguodala and that whole era out of the Sixers because when Andre Iguodala was on the Sixers, they had him playing the number one offensive guy. Uh, he scored 20 again. People don't remember. Andre Godala was a 20-point scorer with the Sixers. He was never a number one offensive guy. That's not who his talent is. I think it's just right now, Boston is not constructed quite well enough. Okay, uh, Eric, I'm going to push you just a little bit on this. What happens? Boston wins game six. They go back to the West Coast. Boston wins game seven. What's the story going to be? I feel there's a little bit, especially as much as this thing is bouncing around, I feel like there's a new narrative after every game, basically. Narrative was that 538 had it right all along. (laughs) (laughs) It's a matter of time. (laughs) No, I think the narrative will be if Boston does win the series, it'll be that the old Golden State Warriors wore down at the end of a long series. That'll be the story that's told and the narrative that's told. Because, look, I think this was said. The one thing I agreed with him last night, the telecast wasn't great. The announcers weren't great. But one thing was, Andrew Wiggins was the difference in that game yeah. last night. It wasn't the 33-year-old or whatever he is, Clay Thompson. It wasn't the 32-year-old Draymond Green. Andrew Wiggins was the difference in that game last night. And again, what does Andrew Wiggins do, in my view, really well? He's playing good defense, but the guy wants to score, he can score. He's always been a scorer. I just feel like Golden State has more of those types of players. <laughs> That's all. That's it. No, and I mean, I I think you know, I mean, you were talking. I I, th- I think the goal, the the kind of strength of that I see Golden State is having that kind of I think protects them from those older guys wearing down or just having off games. Steph Curry did not have a good game last night. No, He's really bad. Got such a strong kind of bench and a bunch of kind of players that are adaptable to different roles, and I think. That is one thing that Boston kind of lacks. I think they had like one point. I think Boston had one point off the bench in the first half yesterday, last night's game. You know, so I, I mean, I, I think that's sort of, I think the way that, you know, if you do have sort of, you know, if you do have those number one scores or those aging kind of superstars, the one thing that you can kind of insure against is, you know, a bad game or injury or whatever. So just have a kind of a really strong bench. And so I think in a team construction sense, that's where I think Golden State has really kind of stood out relative to Boston. Either way, we really, I mean, I, any analytics person, any sports fan has got to want a game seven here. Come on, let's have Boston yeah. win game six and let's see a game seven. And oh, I, oh, come on. I think it's more likely than not. Have you seen a line for game six yet? I've, I've got to believe the Celtics will be favored, but also oh, just the dynamics. I'll tell, you, of this I'll tell you in one second, but I don't think so. Well, it's in Boston for one, and they're pretty evenly. Yeah, no, you're right. No, you're right. Boston's. I'm shocked. 
Boston's favored by four, which, by the way, is no different than the Boston line has been for pretty much each of their home games. I would, I would make any. I don't think I'd make any difference. This is just. I mean, I think there's just so much back and forth. In fact, watching the game last night, I mean, remember they had a couple of these streaks where, what was it? Boston missed like their last 12 yeah. three-point shots. Oh, no. And then they, they hit like eight or nine in a row to start the they second Eight or nine in a row. Oh, and by the way, when they were hitting eight or nine in a row, Golden State ran off a zero for 14 yeah. run. I mean, that's just that's just chance, guys. These, they were getting – both teams were getting off the same quality shots more or less in these stretches, and you're just getting these chance streaks of hits and misses. And I, I began I, – I was thinking about Michael Mobison's idea of the paradox of skill – so Mobison, financial analyst, great thinker, great guy, has a book called The Success Equation, maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And in, the, in that book, he, he talks about the paradox of skill, which is basically the more important skill is, or the, the more skillful competitors get, the more chance determines the outcome. It's the paradox of skill. When people are equally matched in skill, the more closely they're matched in skill, the bigger the role of, of chance. And I feel like that's a little bit of what's going on with this series, that we're telling all these stories when it's just really, it's like, you know, once the shot's up and it's a high quality shot, it's chance. And we get way, I the long Yeah, I got a great stat for you just quickly. In a 2-2 series, my son Ben was the one that brought this up to me. In a 2-2 series, when whoever wins game five goes up 3-2, what are the odds you think that they win the series? Well, you'd think you'd think it'd be significant, right? Yeah. Well, so, what do you think it is? Now, by the way, if yeah, what do you think it is, Shane? Seventy-five percent. Well, let's now, give. Let's say they're evenly matched. Then, then it would be seventy-five percent. But so, the team has gone up three to two. So, so what do you think, Adi? What's your guess? The team that's up three two. Um, it, but there's a little bit of a. Balance. It was two two. I just want to be clear. Yeah, it, it was. I'm two. not looking at all series that get the three two. It was two two. Whoever wins game five, what percentage of the time do they is this win? Is all playoff series or just so, the final? I, I think there's going to be some. I think it's all mean, playoff series. I think there's going to be some mean all reversion. Playoff. I think there's going to be some reversion. In saying, I'm going playoff. less than 75. I'm going 70%. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm going to go I'm going to go certainly less, maybe even less than 70% because if it's all series. What I've noticed about the all series is the favorite wins, but not until game seven. Um, and, and there's a strangeness that happens along the way. So I would guess 68 See, so I want to give you guys a lot of credit. I would have guessed the number, by the way, is 73 percent. I would have guessed above 75 percent because the signal is the no. But you guys have given absolutely reasonable arguments about why it shouldn't be. But the fact is, the three two team you think should be better. The lower bound of your guesses should be 75 percent. You would think. Yes, yes, that's the lower bound. And that's what my son and I had a discussion about. I just thought it was an interesting right, because, statistic. Because, well, I was arguing. I was arguing that the the, the the next game is more likely to be won by the team behind. Yeah, and and, and pushing it closer, lower. I think Bill James. I think I, I don't know if I'm giving too much credit to Bill James, but somebody has shown this in some of these, and I think it's basketball in particular that has some of these hydraulics that has some of these reversion. It's um, 
I mean, in any sport where home court advantage is large, you would have these kind of reversion things. Yes. Oh, there goes Shane de-psychologizing it. It's just home court. Well, I mean, de-psychologize, I've just psychologized this entire situation because we certainly have not, 73% is not statistically significantly different than my coin flip. You no, that's the right answer. Point. I thought that was what you were going to be coming on about. Like, Either I had it right. Please, let the, was the right Celt- Please let the Celtics win game six because I want to see a game seven. Me too, me too. Well, um, I, I would. What would you bet? What's your over, what's your probability on the Celtics? It's a four point line. I'm not sure what that translates into in a basketball. Of what about 55, 45. 55? Okay, I would give it greater than that. I would take the. I would take. The, I would lay those points for the Celtics in Game Six. I, I strongly would. I, I wonder about your wear it, wearing down argument, Eric. I mean, how often have they? put two rest days between NBA finals. It feels like I've this never seen stretched like out. this. Now there's three, because they're straight changing cities. There's three, it was last game was Monday. This game started. The, if there's a game seven, it's Sunday. Yeah. I don't remember the NBA finals having essentially, except for the two home games. I don't remember there being three games in between. I think it's a big advantage for the Warriors. And I think um, they have to look at the design in the future. That's my view. Well, they're, they're probably eking out. I don't know. They're making it more dramatic. They're getting more advertising. They're building up more drama. I don't know. I'm, I'm not complaining that much because this is such a fun series. But if it were like many of the past series, it would be a little bit less compelling. All right, guys. That has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Work Moneyball. Welcome to Q3, another open topic segment here in two hours of sports analytics. We covered a variety of sports in Q2. I want to roll into a couple of major ones here in Q3. We're sitting at near the end of the NBA Finals and at the beginning of the NHL Finals. Why don't we talk about NHL first, guys? We're kicking off the Lightning Avs title series. We're recording this on Tuesday night. I think it's played Tuesday night. Isn't it played tonight? No, maybe it's tomorrow night. I think it's tomorrow night. I think Wednesday it's night. tomorrow night. Yeah, um, tomorrow night, I think. This is the the Avs have kind of waltzed to this, and they're kind of consensus number one team, but they're playing the Lightning, the two-time defending champion Lightning, who came in kind of you know strong but middling, and then they've put on a real show during the playoffs having just knocked out the Rangers, followed, followed the Panthers, and before that, the Leafs. They've had quite a series. Any thoughts on this Stanley Cup Finals, especially you, Shane, Mr. Canada, Mr. Hockey? Yeah. I mean, it's not really necessarily the finals I was, at, like, wanting in the sense, you know, I, I mean, I guess, I, I you know, I, I kind of like to see some new blood in there. But, you know, what Tampa Bay's been doing, you know, in this kind of burgeoning dynasty. And I think we definitely will be using the word dynasty if they finish off this, uh, this finals victory um, is, is incredibly impressive. And again, you know, I think it's the closest thing to a dynasty we've seen, you know, at least since sort of this phase of kind of free agency in hockey over the last few years, a few decades, really. So that's, that, that is one thing that's really impressed me, but also, you know, the avalanche, as you mentioned, have been kind of mostly steamrolling through their competition, more or less through these playoffs. They've had a, you know, as, as these kind of hockey things go a relatively, you know, easy run of it, but this is obviously one of the best teams that they are going to face the entire way through. So I think it's, it's going to be a real challenge. It could go either way. I think, you know, I think let's not also forget the path that it took. I would say the lightning safely were, 15 minutes away from being eliminated in the playoffs. Let's just remember they were down. They were down 
two nothing to the Rangers in games, and they were down two to nothing going into the third period of game three. So imagine you're down two nothing, two nothing. And I'm not saying they can't come back. Of course, they just won four straight, so they can win four straight, obviously. But they were inches away from being, you know, down 3 nothing, looking at a massive uphill. And so I'll say the following. I watched a lot of that series, not just because I was a Ranger fan going up, but I have relatives in Tampa and stuff. Beating Vasilevsky, the, the, it's not going to be easy. Because he's going to keep you in every single game. Now, that doesn't mean Avalanche can't win. But you can forget these nine to six scores. They're not putting nine pucks past Vasilevsky. They're just not. And so it's going to come down every game. I mean, Shane's more of an expert than I am. But I think every game's going to come down. It may well come down to a call by the referee on a power play. Because, you know, full strength, full strength. By the way, I think I do like Colorado. But every game's going to be tight. But you can just forget putting it. Just you're, he's not giving up more than three goals. He's yeah. just hold on, not Eric. Going yeah. the, the Leafs. The Leafs had a couple of high scoring games against him in the first round. Like they had a bunch of big numbers. That that was that funny series. Remember where each team took turns winning by like three or four goal differential. Yeah, in my opinion, he just got – I don't know if he got better. I don't know. Just maybe there's non-stationarity. I'm not going to call it momentum or any of those things. The last 10 games, he looked like the goalie we've seen in the playoffs the last couple years. But Shane knows a lot more than I I, I, I do think – I mean, I do think – I mean, I don't think he's quite – you know, he's not on – you know – unbreakable but he is probably the main advantage that the lightning have going into this round i mean i i think there's this is going to be a great matchup both in terms of the colorado offense against the tampa bay defensemen and the other way around the tampa bay offense against the colorado defensemen you've got like all stars essentially in all four of those different permutations the i i think on paper colorado both on the offensive and defensive sides side probably does i think have you know, an advantage on paper. The one place in which I think, you know, Tampa Bay can counter with an advantage is Vasilevsky. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I think the, cl- the series is going to be quite close. I mean, I'm not surprised that Colorado's favored. I think I looked, 538 has them at like, you know, like kind of low 60s percent to mm-hmm. win the cup. And I, you know, I don't have a you know, we've been ragging on right. Col- we, We've been ragging on 538 a, a lot for their for their basketball kind of like forecasting the last few weeks. I th- I mean I I think that's that's about where I would have it probably. I wouldn't put uh I wouldn't put uh Colorado you know above 65 percent, but like you know high 50s or low 60 percent. So that's by the way, right that's that's where the the athletic has them as well. So there's a nice yeah. um there's a nice preview up there by Shannon Goldman and Dom. I'm, I can never get Dom's last name right. Yeah, we, no, Lecession or something. It's, yeah. it's really tough. I, we need to get him on the show just to get the pronunciation right. But they have a nice preview there. They have the probabilities of 61-39 abs. But remember that Dom does this heavy score thing. And the heavy score is a way of considering not just the size of the players, but the way they play in the playoffs. And they find that a certain style of play and a certain type of player is – is related to winning and, and, and the lightning play heavier than the abs do. And they make that a 6% adjustment. And so that gets it down to 55, 45. If you believe in the heavy score, Dom's heavy score, it's down to 55, 45. Oh, and by the way, even at 60, 40, the lightning faced worse odds against both the Panthers and the Leafs. So the lightning have made it through rounds already at 60, 40 odds. And these guys have it more like 55, 45. It starts looking, it starts looking really close. 
Let's just go a couple more minutes on the NHL and then we'll change gears. But I want to give you guys just a couple other numbers that we had from that preview that you mentioned Vasilevsky. People are calling him, people consider him, you know, the or one of the best goals, goalies in the world, especially in the last few playoffs. He's had 42 playoff saves above expectation over the last three years. So 65 games, a lot of games, but 42 saves above expectation, second highest save percentage above expectation in that time. I agree, Shane. It sounds like he's the biggest advantage here. I want to, especially for the non-hockey fans, which I non-regular watching fans like myself, I want to point out the 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 Dom Shana preview really went to town on Kale McCarr, the defenseman for the Abs. Yeah. And people talk about him, not just those guys, but some of the like halftime shows that are the between period shows on, on the networks. Talk about Kale McCarr as one of the best defensemen, not just the best defenseman in the league, but like one of the best defensemen the league has seen that good. And he's like 23 years old. So you're probably not tuning into hockey, hockey thinking you're going to pay attention to the defenseman, but McCarr is one we're supposed to keep our eyes on. Yeah, no, And I mean, you watching him basically, I mean, nobody can really shut down Connor McDavid, but they came the closest to kind of shutting him down. And that was mostly McCarr's work. Uh, uh, on the kind of defensive side in that series. So whether he's able to do that same work, that same magic against Kucherov and some of the other kind of stars on the Tampa Bay Lightning will be a big part of the series. But am I not right that you would consider, I mean, I was talking to my, you know, Tampa cousins about this. Doesn't, maybe it's endogenous to the fact that they're maybe going to win three Stanley Cups in a row, but they've certainly been to a bunch. Um, you would agree Stamkos is a Hall of Famer, right? He's a yes. Hall of Famer. Yeah, yes. and I think so. Kucherov is a Hall of Famer, right? I think so. I mean, I, I don't think and, he's quite. Yeah, probably. And Vasilevsky's a Hall of Famer. And Hedman's probably, as a defenseman, is probably a Hall of Famer, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah so, so they've got at least four, four Hall of Famers on their team right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying Colorado doesn't. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But I'm just saying, let's not make it seem like the avalanche, I mean, the lightning. But as I said, part of that's endogenous. If you take, you know, they're, they're Hall of Famers and they're in their peak three-year period and that's what's getting them yeah. into the Hall of Fame. But they, they have a talented team. It's not just the goalie. Is all no, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. No, I, I, I think it speaks more just to kind of how stacked Colorado kind of is as a team that you have the three, you know, the three-time Stanley Cup finalists, you know, in, in not, fa- you know, as the underdog in this particular final. Right. Right. You know, so now, I mean, I mean it, it takes, it's really, I'm, I'm taking nothing away with Tampa Bay and calling Colorado the favorite. It just is a, you know, a, a historically kind of stacked team. And just one last question. I feel an obligation to ask this to you, Shane. If I just took away the fact that Tampa Bay has won two straight finals, instead of the 60-40 odds that you may feel comfortable with, what would you change the odds I wouldn't to? push it above two thirds, no matter what. In the Stanley Cup Finals, I, I just I I right. that's like that's, crazy, all, that, that's like my high water mark for like you know um, right. You know, but also teams tackle against Eric, Montreal last year maybe would have been kind of the closest thing to a mismatch that we've seen in modern times. And again, I would not. And, have and what's interesting about players. hockey is, and I'm sure maybe Kay, this is where you were going. If I told you they were the two time defending MLB champs, the two time defending maybe MLB with your coin flipping model, Shane, you wouldn't yeah. go much higher, but. At NBA, I think you would go higher. Oh, yeah, yeah. NFL, you might go higher. Um, you know, I don't know, golf or let's say tennis, not Rafa Nadal. I'm just saying hockey is and ba- baseball, I think, are two of those sports where, in your mind, I think you've said this for eight plus yeah. years. So I, and I've been listening coin flips. that it's going to be a lot of coin flips. Yeah. Guys, one last note. Um, I've got kind of a uh, 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 
expansion team bias? Do y'all have this? Like, I can't quite get on board with the Panthers or the Jags, even after all these years. I still hold it a little bit against the Buccaneers. And that's 1976. But the Avs, the Avs used to be the Nordique. When I cut my yeah. hockey teeth, the Nordique were still playing mm-hmm. in Quebec. Oh, yeah. These guys oh, yeah. Uh, moved to Denver in like 95 or something. Um, and they've been waiting for that first championship. And so it's an. Well, they won one back. They've won a couple back in, uh, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s as well. The Avs have? Did yeah. I, I'm missing my. Yeah, history. Ray Bork won his one championship there. Yeah, uh, I remember that. I'm going to say 98, 99. It was actually very shortly after they moved because that Nordiques team was stacked and fast when they moved. Okay. Yep. Okay. Well, um, all right. I had a little history right and a little history wrong. All right, guys, we got more history kicking off with uh, tomorrow night's game one, Avs Lightning. All right, guys, uh, enough on hockey for the time being. And now we have our other collaborators rolling in here to join us for the last of Q3. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. I mean, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen joining me and Audie Weiner. Guys, a few minutes left here. have a handful of sports floating around. Y'all have been getting my World Series, my college World Series, my women's college World Series text as OU slaughtered Texas at the end. We kind of anticipated it was still, it was almost it was almost admirable in its, in its, in its efficiency. I mean, OU softball defending national champs. Did you see the run differential? Their season run differential was something like 600 to 60. It was literally 10 to one. It's literally 500 something (laughs) differential. The top three players for OU three, or maybe four, the top three or four players in runs for OU scored more runs this season than their opponents did in some the top individual four players individually scored more runs than the other team. I mean, it's, it's like real... Babe Ruth hit more home runs than the rest of the major leagues or whatever back in his day. Is that the it, way it went? It's really interesting because I always, my memories of softball at high level were pitching dominant and it seems to be outrageously flipped. Yeah. I, I don't know. This is an unusual team, but I can, I can tell you that there's a lot of action. I, I if I was more rigorous, I would have counted how many, how many plays happened in women's softball versus major league baseball these days, you know, people whinge about major league baseball, nothing happens. You know, there's no grounders. There's no double plays. There's nothing, man. That's there's so much action. They've, they've got a smaller field and everything's just bang, bang. And it's a lot of fun. There's there, it's a lot of fun. I recommend it in the future on the men's side, the, the men's college world series just got set just yesterday. Finals over the weekend. And then yesterday, the last teams are eight teams going to Omaha, four teams, of the final eight weren't seated. They weren't, they didn't host a regional. They're not one of the top 16 teams in the country, but they've made it into the college world series. The, the number one team, the number three team, the number four team all got knocked out. Tennessee was supposed to be head and shoulders above anybody else. Notre Dame took them out two out of three in Knoxville. And so Notre Dame advanced number three, Vatek got knocked out. Number four, Oregon state got knocked out. So we've got this really flat. Anybody can win it kind of college world series the probabilities the implied probabilities from the money from the money lines this is betting market top team my longhorn 16 percent down to eighth team texas a&m at nine and a half percent it's really anybody's anybody's wow so you're saying the top out of eight is only 16 percent yeah wow it's very very flat that's pretty much as flat as you get and I mean, the next two are 14, 14, and 13. So the top four teams are 16, 14, 14, and 13. So that's Texas, Stanford, Notre Dame, Arkansas. And it's a fun, just a quick aside on Texas. Texas bracket, they're, they've got two 14 brackets. So play these pools 
and then the two winners will come out and play at a two out of three. Texas 14 bracket is Texas, Texas A&M, Oklahoma. These are their two biggest rivals in sport, and they're in the same 14 pod in Omaha. And then the fourth is Notre Dame, and they've had some big Notre Dame games in football anyway. All right, that's men's college world series one last note before we flip into baseball did anybody watch the belmont stakes this past weekend it gets so quiet when you don't have a kentucky derby and preakness winner but it's still a fun race i i, I mean it's just two and a half minutes it's like a fun thing to go do for two and a half minutes we talked yeah. about it a little bit last week mo donegal wins this thing mo donegal yeah, was a i was so angry at myself because you didn't bet mo donegal yeah because look look he, he came on strong at the at the uh derby and this is the horse that Jeff Cedar said was oh, the he? best horse. No, this really? is the one he told us that. to bet, Mo Donegal. <laughs> this was the horse. You're always betting. Why did you not bet it? I, I was good. I, I you forgot. forgot. You're I, busy. I pretty much forgot it was the Belmont the, until just yeah. before the race and then yeah. whatever. I'm just saying, all I know is I felt vindicated for Jeff Cedar because if you look at the total outcomes of the three races in total, I think he was right. I think Mo Donegal was the best horse. All right. Well, Donegal won. It was a tight. It was a tight grouping all the way through. It was a fun race. This number two horse was a filly. A filly's only won the Belmont three times before. Uh, came in second here. The third horse, I think it's a Hall of Fame horse name, Skippy Longstocking. Skippy Longstocking came in third at Belmont. Props to the owners for that one. And our Rich Strike, Rich Strike, who was the 79 to 1 long shot, the one the Kentucky Derby, came in sixth out of eight, ran at the back pretty much the whole way, never did make up the ground. All right, gentlemen, there are things going on in baseball, I assume. I have not paid attention in the last week. Tell me, what else? Who else? How many games have the Yankees won? What's I think going- they won oh. six out of the last seven since their last. Uh- Hold on, Eric, you got to give this bit about the Louis Tiot nolan ryan game in 1974 on this date. We're recording on June 14th. On this date, 1974, which was a long time ago, 38 years ago, how many pitches did Nolan Ryan throw? Well, they're saying he threw 200 and what, 235 or something like that. And Tion yeah. threw like 169 or something like that. Um, this was yeah. a 15-inning game. And Lou Tion threw like 14 in the third. He threw 14. Ryan he threw, threw the 13. whole game. He threw a complete game loss in the 15th. And Ryan threw 13 out of the 15 <laughs> innings for, uh, you know, at that point. Unbelievable. Look, no, I mean that's like a full month of pitch uh, <laughs> pitches for like a Tampa Bay pitcher now. <laughs> you ain't kidding. 60, 60 pitches a game for you know four pitches a games a month. <laughs> Jeez. No, I mean I, look, it, it shows a lot of things, but I think also it's guys' arms were probably trained differently. I mean Ryan's a freak, obviously. I mean, I assure you guys, I could have posted this in our chat also. Nolan Ryan has the most no-hitters, one-hitters, two-hitters, and three-hitters in the history of baseball. So it's hard to compare him to anybody in the history of baseball. I mean, he had an arm that could just – and he threw it – I forget, was he 46 when he's retired or something like that? So it's almost not fair. But, to, yeah, to throw 235 pitches is remarkable, just remarkable. You know, I saw Ryan do it, throw out an opening ball, and he, has, and he still throws it in the high 80s. <laughs> No, no, you're talking about recently. I yeah. saw the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and he's late 60s, at least. Yeah. More. But Jesse, I mean, it, it just kind of goes to show. Let's go, go ahead, kid. Did y'all see Mina Kimes throw out the first ball at a Seattle Mariners game this past week? <laughs> Little, no. I mean, she's actually pretty tall and she's athletic, but she's not a baseball player. And she, she didn't have quite as much. She did throw a strike, but it was a, it had the arc of a slow pitch softball. It was an EFIS pitch. 
Well, well we saw which we see a lot more than right. I just now. The position players seem to be pitching that's right. like mean, every other game. Well, let's get back to where Kate started. The Yankees are forty-four <laughs> and sixteen. All right. No, no. But here's why it's important. So <laughs> if, if it's important because it's the Yankees. But secondly, it's important because if they play 500 ball the rest of the way, which would be hard to agree, they're only going to play 500. That's 95 wins. 538 has their prediction for the Yankees now. And Adi, I want you to go over under now. 105 wins is where they Ooh. have the Yankees right now. Now, by the way, that only makes them have to go 61 and let's see, that's 100. And, there's 102 games left, 61 and 41. That's 600 ball. They're playing 733 ball. So where are you going, Adi, on the Yankees? 105 wins. They have to I'd, go be, I'd be over on that. By, by the way, barely, let's, not, let's not just throw 538 under the bus because fan graphs, who we've been talking about in recent weeks, is even more regressive. They have 102. 102. Yeah. So they have the yeah. Yankees going no better than 58 and 44. Yes. That seems it's way Fangraphs, low. Fangraphs still thinks the Yankees are the fifth best team in, in the league. Yeah. I mean, I will say sort of like 538, we were slamming them in our little basketball segment about how they shouldn't be, they, they need to be shrinking so much more, you know, blah, uh, blah, blah. And now we're like slamming them because they're shrinking too much. No, no, no. 538, we're okay. We're slamming aggressive shrinkage. Yeah. Well, Shane, that's a fair point, but Yes, we are, damn it. So we'd rather the world err in that direction. It's basically oh. paying attention to base rates. But now we want them to be wise about choosing their base rates. Uh, but here, but here's the thing. At the beginning of the season, forget the Yankees 44 and 16. Who didn't think that the Yankees were going to win 58% of their games? They're not shrinking towards anything realistic in no, my view. No, actually, quite honestly, 58 is uh, it's barely. Uh, but I would have I preseason, I think Yankees would be 56%. Nobody predicts 60, 600. We know a yeah. team will do it, but you generally don't. I see. Fix I see. It. I was thinking six hundred, but that's fair enough. So yeah. they are yeah, shrinking towards I, I, something I reasonable. Have done, I wouldn't have done the Yankees at six hundred. No way. No way. Adi, Adi, so here's a homework assignment for you. I'm serious about it. I'm going to miss next week, so I'd rather not do it next week. But I want to do a little bit on here, where you give us your point forecast for the Yankees' win total at the end. And walk us through the logic because you're going to have to choose a particular yep. amount of shrinkage. And we talk, this is one, probably our most common topic on the show. And it cuts across all sports, it cuts into politics. And we talk about it all the time, but we kind of wave our hands at it, which is better than not paying attention to it at all. But can we do it a little bit better? And so this will be a real, you know, small example. We can yep. get our arms around and, and we we'll can talk, talk about empirical base. I think it's you could act. do it for Aaron Judge's home run total for the season, too. Because okay. what's he on track right. for Let's right now? Like 60, he's on track for about 65 home runs. I think, 65 right now. right now he's yeah. on track. So we'll do that. We'll, we'll, we'll work through the principles in one case, and then we'll do the other one as an exercise out loud, and we'll see where we end up. And maybe we'll all come away a little bit wiser about shrinkage as a result. All right, guys, that has been another quarter. That's three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We have an interview segment ahead with Dan Rappaport, the golf analyst. He's at the country club in Boston, ready to cover the U S open, giving us the scoop on all things live golf and the drama around that. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball rolling into the fourth quarter. Now fourth quarter has become our interview segment. This is our second interview for this show. We are delighted to have 
Dan Rapport, he is a golf writer for Golf Digest, Golf Insider. He has been a frequent guest with us. He can talk analytics. We can also talk personalities. And now he can talk live golf. Howdy, Dan. How are you? I am good. It's been a very, very dramatic couple of days. I can only imagine. Uh, it's uh, Well, it's just like, it's amazing how, how many messages I'm getting from people who don't care about golf ever but this has captivated their attention because you don't get, you just, it, this just doesn't happen very often in sports. You know, it'd be like in our world, if the NFL, yeah, if, the, yeah, if, I mean, if there's a thing called the USFL that was created and started stealing all the stars. Well, but if the USFL wasn't, you know, was, was running during the same time period as the NFL and they were getting, you know, Patrick Mahomes signed up and or Steve Young that, you know, Odell Beckham, <laughs> yeah, or Herschel Walker. Been, <laughs> this yeah. is I, I i understand your guys um the jokes but it's 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 actually it's way more credible there's more and more guys who are going to go and so the pga tour is going to have to respond in a more bold way than they already have um i i think this is really just the beginning to be honest with you they had really one player who is sort of a top level talent uh, right now on the PJ tour. And that's Dustin Johnson. Obviously Phil is a huge draw, um, but he's no longer, a com- it's crazy. He did win in the major championship not that long ago, but if you look at his, I mean, he's not a con- consistent contender. Maybe right. Patrick, since Patrick added, Reed might be, Patrick Reed since, might be the well, other person. Well, that's what I'm saying. They've since added Patrick Reed and they've since added um, Bryson DeChambeau. And, and there are more names like that that are going to come out. These guys who aren't past their prime, um, who are in their prime and who are, not viewing this as a retirement tour, which is kind of how it was discussed in the beginning, but they're viewing this as just like an alternative, like a, I'll play the majors, I'll play the live events and that will be my life. And I think we never, um, in, in our world, we never expected it to get to a point where, where guys would be okay uh, with not playing the PGA tour. What we thought was the PGA tour would say, if you play live, you can't play on the PGA tour. And then it would go to court. But I don't even know. The guys don't even seem to care if they can't play on the PGA Tour. It's like, well, they, I mean, you know, yeah, I, I, and I, I guess we've kind of discovered that the only real kind of teeth that the PGA Tour has is, is the majors, right? And, and so. But it's not, but the P, they don't own the, they don't yeah, own the majors. Yeah, it would have right. to be so, some I mean, kind it, of a collective would, agreement between them and the US. Right, PGA right. And, 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 the, and the majors are in an interesting spot because, in, in kind of a perverse way, this is almost good for them because it further cements their status as the only events that really matter, right? Yep. Because like if, if you have two tours and then you have four tournaments every year that everyone plays in, those four tournaments are going to be, they're going to be massive. They're going to be massive draws, bigger, you know, and, and more of a difference from normal weeks than there already is. Um, I don't think the general sporting public realize that the PGA tour and the major championships are totally separate. Yeah, but Dan, they're, the PGA they're, tour- there is one aspect that they are tied, right? Which is the qualifications for getting in. And some of them, like for the Masters, let's take an example. We know the Masters definitely is not owned by the PGA Tour or anybody but the Masters. But world ranking does get you in as one qualif- the, one of the major qualifications for the Masters. And if you're playing live events, I'm assuming you're not getting official world ranking points. And therefore, that's not an avenue to get you into the Masters. And I assume the same is true for the other majors as well, that one of the qualifications is whether it's top 50, however they do it. I think it's top 50 for many of them. So there is a tie between them. And so if you know yeah. Phil Mickelson 
is going to qualify because he just won the PGA recently and others. But, you know, eventually there'll become a time where Patrick Reed won't, will no longer be able to qualify for the majors if he doesn't play any PGA events. Yes. So the Masters is a little unique in that it's a lifetime exemption. So those guys who have won, Patrick Reed being one of them, will always get to play. But you're right. I think the Masters is top 50 in the world. U.S. Open is top 60. I think the British Open is also top 60. And the PGA Championship is top 100. Um, so, yes, that's a big domino that's yet to fall is the official world golf ranking thing. But here's the thing. If they get all these players that they're rumored to get, you would think that the world rankings have no choice but to add, to add you know, live to their system. Yeah. If, if, they're, if they're, their job is not to set the agenda, their job is to rank the best players in the world. You would think that if there is a tour that, because the world ranking does ranking points for tours that you guys have never even heard of, like yeah. legitimately never, like, you know, the, the Alps tour. You guys know much about the Alps tour or the Sunshine tour, right? So the, so the world rankings, they're involved in literally every professional golf tour. If you have one that has, I don't know, 10 of the top 50 players in the world, like, how can you not rank that? And then making matters even more complicated, the board of the PGA tour of the, of the official world golf ranking guys who are on the board to make the decisions. It's like the head of the USGA, the head of the RNA, the head of the PGA tour, Jay Monahan is on the board. So it's like game of Thrones in our sport right now. And do you think that the PGA, most of the P I mean, I, you know, I, I can kind of understand the PGA tours opposition to this as just a concept because they, you know, it's, they effectively have a monopoly on most of the kind of, you know, the, the, essentially the top golf talent in the world. But, you know, given that they actually maybe don't have as much leverage as they thought they did in this situation, do you think that there's kind of a, an opportunity for compromise? Is that going to be kind of the tone that they set from this point forward? Or do you think they're going to be going to go more kind of on the aggressive against this, you know, kind of upstart? Well, they're, they're sort of back into a corner now because they've been so hardline the entire time. The messaging has been, it's us or them. You have to make a choice. And that's what they were at the beginning. The, the mm-hmm. Saudis, you know, made this overture to the PJ tour a couple of years ago, the PJ tour, you know, had a look and said, and said, no, um, so Monaghan either has to, has to compromise, uh, in which he would look really weak and, or he would look like, you know, he came off his stance, he's, he's waffling or he has to continue on his hardline stance, which could, you know, be really detrimental to the organization that he leads. So, I mean, if you watch his, the interview he did with Jim Nance on, on Sunday, it's like very serious. I mean, he's, I think he's very, very concerned. I think everyone at the PJ tour is really concerned. I think they kind of thought that this thing would collapse on itself before it actually launched, which, you know, to be fair, that was a reasonable thing to believe given how slow it was and how there are all these rumors and it was going to come out on this date and then it got pushed back, but it's, you know, the money is, was very real and the money continues to be very real. So this thing is not going away. And, and I think there are um, definitely a lot of players who don't think the PGA Tour has handled this very well. And that the reason that it has become so contentious and so us or them is because the PGA Tour, you know, perhaps out of arrogance, perhaps out of uh, you know, being naive, didn't even, didn't even entertain the opportunity to collaborate with these guys. Yeah, so I mean, it seems to oh, me. Oh, go ahead, Shane. Oh, uh, it just seems, I mean, that's kind of my reading on the situation, too. I mean, I, I kind of feel like 
there's not so many players involved and there's not so many events involved that I don't think that there, there seems to be room for these two tours to peacefully coexist if they, you know, were a little bit more coordinated, you know, if they kind of coordinated about it. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily where we're going. Well, with this, it, but... it, it could happen. I mean, it's definitely, it definitely could happen, but then the PGA tour sort of becomes second fiddle, right? They, they don't, they just don't have the same money that the Saudis are. It's that simple. So how do you see this progressing? Like I watched actually a fair amount of live golf this weekend, but I also watched the Canadian open where I saw in my view, Justin Rose choke shooting 59. I watched, you know, a bunch of guys shooting in the low sixties. I thought the quality of golf was fantastic at the Canadian open. It was an exciting finish to the tournament. You know, McElroy yeah. struggling down the last few holes. You had also maybe one of the greatest groupings of three that I've seen yeah. in years. It was Tony Finau, Justin Thomas and Rory McElroy. And obviously, it's not like it was scripted that it you know you know how the pairings go in the golf that it just turned out to be one of the great pairings so what did you think about the quality of the golf in the canadian open and what do you think about the quality of the golf in the uh live golf yeah it's not it's not close right now um if you, you know, if you compare the two like you mentioned i mean one of them was shotgun start 54 holes um a lot of really a lot of golfers who are just not good enough to play on the PGA tour. I, you know, that sounds harsh, but Andy Ogletree, uh, he shot 24 under par, 24 over, sorry, 24 over par for three rounds uh, and made $120,000. There just wasn't, there weren't many shots of consequence. There weren't any roars the entire week, really. And then you watch the Canadian open and it was electric right now. The PGA tour is a much better product. I don't think that's debatable, but if you, if you, put 10 more great players in that event, the live events, I mean, that, that will change things, you know, like the just better players will mean better golf, more attention. I don't think it's fair to, to judge the first live event against the thousandth PGA tour event. I mean, it's just one of them is, is trial and error. They've, they've, you know, they're, they're just starting out and the other one has a formula that works, but I will tell you, Jay Monahan was definitely thrilled that Rory and JT and, and Tony Finau came and put on that show. Before I turn it back over to Shane, just one question. Do you see the possibility of, I mean, I'm also a senior golf fan. Why doesn't Bernard Longer, why doesn't, uh, you know, Davis Love the Third? why doesn't Freddie Couples, I, why does Live Golf, it could have anybody, right? Is there any reason, those guys are big draws. Any reason you couldn't get the three of them to come on over? I mean, my guess is they're competitive with Andy Ogletree and all those guys. I mean, why can't they go over there? Wait, sorry, who, who, why couldn't who go over there? I missed that. Some of, the, some of the great pros from the past, the guys on the senior tour. Why can't Fred Couples, Davis Love the Third? Why maybe they they'll could. ask them to play? They could. they could, right? Yeah, no, they could. There's no, I mean, there's no qualification rules. It's whoever they invite. Yeah, right? and, and, and especially this uh, one thing I kind of like the innovation I kind of like about it is this kind of team setup potentially adds like a layer of sort of complexity to like beyond just kind of the individual performance. And you could even have something where you have you know, in the creation of these teams, you have like some kind of like age brackets or something like that to kind of like have a little bit of parity among the teams. Well, they did that, Shane. You may remember, I'm sure Dan could talk about this. I remember this event they used to have on the PGA Tour where they had a senior, a regular PGA Pro and an LPGA player playing together as like a team. And I thought that was some of the best fascinating golf. And you're right. There's nothing you could have a 50 and up player, a non-50 and up player and a female. Who knows? Look, as Dan was just saying, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Dan. Get Annika Sorenstam to play. I mean, there's there's no reason it has to be all male players. You're right. 
I mean, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, we, we've been sort of pushing for a, a co-ed event of significance for a, a long way because there was actually, ironically, there was actually a co-ed event this, this past week on the European tour uh, and a woman won it by eight shots. I think it was eight shots, maybe seven shots. She was the only woman in the top 10. Um, and they, when they're obviously playing different keys, but it's doable. Like, you, you know, you could have a co-ed event. And I think, um, you know, the PGA Tour, for better or for worse, I, I would say for worse, has been really married to the 72-hole stroke play format. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's been that way for a hundred years. It's not really how, how people consume media anymore. Um, there's like 46 of them, or 47 of them in a 52 week year. Yep. Um, it's very, very repetitive. And I think one of the, the consequences or, or one of the eventualities of this whole thing, no matter if Liv is successful or not, is that the PGA Tour is having to take a very long and hard sobering look at their product because this didn't happen by accident you know this this has been this has been coming there was going to be a challenger as long as the pockets were deep enough because the product is a bit stale it's just the fact of the matter we're here on Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, professor of statistics, Shane Jensen. Uh, we're talking to Dan Rappaport, who's a staff writer and PGA Tour insider at Golf Digest. He's also worked for Sports Illustrated. We've been talking live golf. We're going to talk live golf for a few more minutes. And then, of course, there is a really big tournament coming up this week, which is, of course, the U.S. Open, and we'll get into that. So where do you think this – I mean – where does this go from here? You said at the moment there's two products that are of different quality, and I think that's undisputable, indisputed. And matter of fact, the live golfers would agree to that. But the money is there. So if the PGA keeps its hard stance, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, do you see another 10 or 15 golfers moving their way over? And again, is it likely to be the top 20 players in the world? Probably not, because they make a lot of money already. They have big endorsement deals. Maybe they're going to, you know, if the qualifications stay the same for majors and they have to play these tournaments to still make the majors. Like, I'm sure Roy McIlroy would love to win the career Grand Slam, and if he felt he couldn't do that. I'm sure Jordan Spieth is in no rush to move over. Maybe Justin Thomas is in no rush to move over. Maybe Tony Finau, who's never won a majors, not in a rush to move over. But where do you see this going? Like, if we project... Two, I was going to say 10 years. Forget 10 years. That's way too long. If we project two years from now, what do you think is going to happen? It's a good question. I've been trying to think about it and, and come to an answer. I think there, the PGA Tour will continue its stance. I think the PGA Tour will do things to make itself more attractive to its stars, whether that's events that are kind of similar to live in the sense of, no cut, guaranteed money. Um, I think the schedule will change a lot. Uh, I don't think that they will go all the way throughout the year. I think there will be more of an off season. Um, probably the fall would be my guess. I think uh, there will be more people who move over. And it will be a situation where there are a lot of guys on the PGA tour and then there are some guys on the live tour and they all play in the majors. I, I can't see the majors doing that and siding with the PGA tour. It's just so like they'll have to modify their qualifications then. Yes. I mean, they'll have, well, to be I think, new- no, I think, well, that or, or live, I think live will get more breaking points. I guess I, I, that's, that is a really interesting piece. And I, I don't know the answer. 
and it's it's made a lot more complicated by you know who's on board of the, of the world rankings but yeah well that's that's one of the things though it's like if you have two tours it's really really hard to determine who the best golfers in the world are and that's that's what's so difficult um like well, with boxing go, right let me go to you that like me, title fight go, and you're like well i don't know what that means well let me ask you a question um I'm, you know, I'm not a good golfer, but, you know, let's say I can play golf. Let, let's pretend for a moment I can play golf. I can play golf. I mean, I can shoot. I always joked I can shoot 100 on any golf course in the world. So let's just say I can okay. shoot 100. But when I, you know, I remember looking at golf courses and I'd try to pretend like it mattered to me. Like there are ratings for different golf courses. And with modern analytics and technology, let's talk a little bit about analytics. Is there not a way to compare? And I'm making this up. Uh, I don't remember the golf course. Uh, the course outside of London that they were playing at the live, but can I not Centurion. compare? What's it called? It was called Centurion. 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 Can I not compare Charles Swarsel's? I don't know, sixty-eight on the Centurion course to Justin Rose's sixty on the you know uh, uh, at the Canadian Open. There's no way to because aren't there like different ratings for is, courses our, and difficulties? There are. There are. Our sport is played outside though, so. That makes it really tough because the weather's never the same. So if, if one of the event, events is happening and it's blowing 30 miles an hour and the other one, it's 75 degrees and sunny and not a breath of wind. I mean, it's, it, and, and then also the weather changes throughout the day on the PGA tour. I mean, it, no, the answer is no, unfortunately, it's not like basketball. It's not like there's, that there's is so much variation. That, that is maybe an Sorry? argument for kind of like that shotgun start kind of design too. Is yeah, no, no, that's, a that's actually bit of the variation. I love is, that idea. Due to var- the, due to yeah, it, do, it does. It does kind of cut down on the variance, but, but the answer is no. I mean, there, there's a way there's, there's a website called data golf. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but it's, they, it's a very data driven way to look at the game. And they, they have a ranking system that is based less on tournaments and more like if who you beat and who you lost to. So it's, it's based less on, okay, the winner of this tournament gets 80 points. It's more like, you know, if you beat this guy and your strokes gained versus this guy is that, you know, and it's more comparative, but, but that's predicated on, on all of them playing the same tournaments, at least sometimes. So if we, if, if, all by the way, just so you know, just for our listeners here on Morton Moneyball, what Dan's talking about, which is. The same thing for my world when I used to work at the Educational Testing Service in Princeton. If I want to be able to compare someone that took this SAT to that SAT, the French exam to this physics exam, I need what's called an overlapping design. I need people that have taken the same test both so I can compare their two distributions. And I would the same thing, and Shane knows this well, very famous statistician that wrote the paper uh, Bridging Eras in Sports. And that was the the BYU guy. I say very famous. But, Shane uh, Reese. Uh, Shane Reese. Reese yes. And Scott Shane Berry Reese. wrote that paper. Yeah. Yeah. Reese and Berry. It's the same idea, Dan, as overlapping design. You need players that have played the same thing to be able to do some sort of what's called diff comparison between them. Right. And that, that would only happen in the major championships, which is a pretty small sample size. I, you know, I wish I had more answers for you guys. I don't think anyone in the world knows. I don't think the PGA Tour Commissioner knows. I don't think the official World Golf Ranking knows. I don't think Greg Norman knows. And it's just, there's just, there's, I mean, there continue to be so many unknowns. Before that, we get to this year's US you know, Open, though, just tell us, though. Doesn't, I mean, haven't in the last couple of weeks you've woken up and said, I'm the luckiest SOB in the world? I mean, golf was always exciting, but now I'm covering golf and 
golf's at the center now of the discussion of the sports world. Just admit, these uncertainties are exciting for you, right? As a data guy, as an analytics guy, as someone that obviously loves the sport, this has got to be your, you know, you, you've hit the jackpot. Yes, in the short term, for sure. As far as attention goes, um, there's definitely more eyeballs in the sport. I, I personally am a little bit disheartened by how much money is factored into the conversation in, in the sense of this has been kind of a, it, it's pulled the mask, mask off and, you know, shown that for, for really a majority of these guys, this is, it's just that money, which maybe I was naive for not believing that in the first place. But um, so that's been kind of a tough realization, but you know, you're right. I mean, I've been on a lot of national shows that, you know, doesn't usually happen. And um right in the middle of it that's for sure I want, and, if we want to talk us open let's, let's do it yeah yeah let's move on to the u.s open so so tell me about first let's start with the course so let's start with the course that they're playing what's known about this course it's a well-known course but what's known about the course how difficult the course is it you know i how how have they made the rough have they made it real bad u.s open rough uh, what are the conditions there? You know, is it, you know, what's the stint meter on the greens? Is everything going to be like 12 and 13 on the stint meter? What are we looking at? Is, let's start with the course and then we'll get to the players. Yeah, I think the course is right where they want it. Uh, kind of a typical U.S. Open setup. Really, really long rough. Greens are fast. Not going to be able to hold the greens from the rough because you're just not going to be able to put any sort of spin on your ball. Uh, the weather seems to be cooperating. Don't think there's any rain in the forecast for this week which is a big deal for golf courses especially u.s opens where the idea is to get everything really firm and really fast uh, rain obviously makes that much more difficult uh, it is a very well-known golf course it has a lot of history but it's been altered significantly uh, by gil hans who is kind of the hottest golf architect in the game right now he also did the renovation of southern hills which hosted the pg championship last year or last sorry last month um, the last time this place has had a significant event was nine years ago when it was the U.S. Amateur. So a lot of, you know, a lot of the guys in the field played in that. And Matt Fitzpatrick, who won that week, is in the field this week and has been playing really well. But um, I, I love it when, when majors come to courses where they don't have like normal tour events because guys have to learn the course. And I think that's fun. I think it's fun to watch them have to choose, you know, start lines and finish lines off tees and decide what clubs they're going to hit that's an aspect of major championship golf that I think uh, is, is sort of underappreciated is, is becoming comfortable with an extremely difficult golf course that you have not played in competition before. How much advantage do the longer hitters have here? And the reason I ask is because there are some golf courses where if you can bomb it 330 off the tee, the fairway can actually get wider again later on. So d- is this the kind of golf course where the, I don't know, the Bryson DeChambeau's and the, you know, Tony Finau's and Gary Woodland's of the world, that these guys can actually blast it over the trouble? Yeah, yeah. There are definitely some holes where you can sort of, cut corners and fly bunkers and stuff. And, you know, I think a couple of years ago I, at Wingfoot, which might've had like the most penal rough of any U S open course in recent memory. I think we, including myself, we made a, a kind of a miscalculation about how it would impact the field. Um, when it's that narrow and the rough is that long length, length is even more important. Sure. Because everyone's going to be missing fairways. So at Wingfoot, it was like the field average was under 50% of fairways. So even the quote unquote straighter guys were missing fairways. So wouldn't you rather be, you know, 50 yards up if you're going to miss the fairway? Yeah. Um, so I think that, I think that's the, I think that's the case this week. You know, I don't think these, these fairways are not quite so severe and not to get too X's and O's, but 
one of the reasons why length was so important at Wingfoot was because you could run it up the greens. The, the, the greens aren't protected in the front by bunkers, so you can kind of hit these wedges that would roll out. Brookline is not like that. There's, there's bunkers and there's, there's crap in front of the greens, so it, you can't just like, kind of hack it out and roll it up. So I think there would be a little bit more important. But, you know, one thing the data has taught us over the last five, six years is that longer is just always better. It's just, it's just that simple. Closer to the hole is better. So let me ask you, who are the favorites and how much like I've I've been um, I've been a as Shane knows, I've been using the term momentum for years. And I always thought golf of all the sports has the most momentum. Like Scotty Scheffler had a streak where he just seemed to couldn't be beaten from my youth, not youth, but my young adulthood. There was a week where 1991 where Freddie Couples couldn't be beaten. Who are who do you see as the hot golfers right now? And who are your favorites uh, as you look at the U.S. Open? Yeah, so I've got uh, three guys that come to mind. Um, the first is Rory. You know, I, eventually he's going to win one of these, right? Win another major. Uh, he's yep. playing great. He had a he had a really good chance to win at Southern Hills. He finished solo second at the Masters. He won his last start in Canada. Uh, he's definitely playing with a bit of a chip on his shoulder um, from with all this live stuff. He's kind of emerged as the spokesman for the pro PGA Tour stance. Uh, so I, I like Rory's chances a lot. Other two, Sam Burns has won three times this year. He was up there again last last week. Yep. Again, you say momentum. He, he and, and then Scotty Scheffler, obviously, is, con- is continuing to show up on the top of leaderboards. Uh, you know, Colonial, after, uh, he missed the cut at uh, he missed the cut at this at Southern Hills, but he played really well the following week. He lost in a playoff to Burns at Colonial. And uh, looked good last week, solid at RBC Canadian Open. And, and confidence is, is, is king in this game. And, and Scotty's showing up to golf tournaments and feeling like he should contend. And I think that's a really dangerous place for a golfer to be. One of the questions we always love to think about on Morton Moneyball, especially when it comes to golf, is, all right, so Dan, how many golfers do I need to give you where you'll give me even odds in the rest of the field. So let's say there's 150 something golfers playing the U.S. Open. Yeah. I might be like if if you that's take really ten and I question. take 146, would you do that or how many? Because one of the things we talk about is you know at the beginning 12. of the NBA, 12. So you take 12, 12 and I get 144 roughly, and you're fine. 50 50 bet. 15 maybe. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, if you look at majors, I mean there are sort of like shock winners, but. Not that often, you know, like Justin Thomas was definitely in the top five for Southern Hills. For sure. Uh, Scotty Scheffler was definitely in the top five for the Masters uh, last year. Colin Morikawa was top 10. Uh, John Rahm was probably one. Notice, you know, by so- the way, you haven't mentioned, and I'm not saying you're wrong. Notice, by the way, you haven't mentioned John Rahm in your top three. You didn't mention John Rahm. Yeah. You didn't mention Jordan Spieth. You didn't mention Justin Thomas. You didn't mention Colin yeah. Morikawa. I mean, these are so, I could name, I love golf, as you can tell. I could name a yes. ton of golfers. Tony Finau. Yeah, I don't know. There's, there's a deep. bunch of guys. Yeah, no, it's very deep right now. It's very, very deep. There's a lot of talent. There's no, there's no alpha male who's, who's clearly above the rest. I mean, Scotty's kind of been that guy this year, but I wouldn't say that he's a dominant force in the game, at least not yet. So I'm excited. I'm excited to watch. That's for sure. So, so maybe in just the last minute or so that we have, um, how soon within the tournament do you think, like I always say, I can watch an NFL game and like after the couple of plays, I always claim I can tell you who's going to win. Like whose offensive line is pushing it. 
how yeah. long throughout this tournament, like how many holes do you need to see to say McElroy's on, Scheffler's on, or he's not on? Or do you think there can be a lot of variation within just a 72-hole tournament? There can be a lot of variation with putting because, because the results are binary. It's either a yes or a no, right? Did you make the putt or did you miss the putt? So some days, you know, if you, if you make three eight-footers on one day and you miss three eight-footers another day, I mean, the difference there is only a couple inches, but it's three strokes, which is massive. To have a three-stroke difference with, with iron play, is, is that's, that's really, really large. So um, a lot of times I'll look at guys' ball-striking stats. And, and, and conversely, if a guy is, you know, up near the top of the leaderboard, but he's making every single putt and he's putting out of his mind, then you kind of know, okay, this probably isn't that sustainable because putting – there's a, you know, a big, a big variance just day to day. So a lot more variance in putting than there is in ball striking. Well, Dan, um, we hope you have a great week at the U S open. Uh, we're all excited to watch it and watch all the great golfers in the world together. So this has been, uh, Dan Rappaport, staff writer and PGA tour insider at golf digest. Uh, that has been two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball for myself, Eric Bradlow, for my co-host Shane Jensen, for uh, Adi Weiner, and for Cade Massey. We want to thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks to the boss man, Matt Datz. Thanks to the associate boss man and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Uh, between now and next week, enjoy your PGA Tour golf, enjoy your sports, and we'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. <laughs>